But uh, we have been going through Hebrews, which is an incredible 13-chapter book. And uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed it. I was away for five of the weeks on vacation and study leave and so on, and the team carried it amazingly. And I've been gifted the opportunity to open up Hebrews 11. So would you grab your Bibles, if you have one, or your weapon of mass destruction, your little telephone, and uh, go and find Hebrews 11 in the NIV. While you do that, let me recap for just a moment. Who wrote this remarkable piece of literature? We don't know. Uh, many have fought for Paul, but every other letter, Paul clearly indicated he was the author. This one, not so much. So some say, well, it could be Barnabas. Barnabas was the son of encouragement, and it could well have been him. We just don't know. Or Apollos, some argued, a man of great intellect and uh, uh, elegant Greek language. It could have been my favorite, and I can say it with joyous confidence, was that it was written according to the German theologian Adolf Harnack. I mean, we all know, we all read Adolf, don't we? I mean, I mean this, this, this Adolf. Um, he argues, he argues this Priscilla, of Priscilla and Aquila fame. In fact, he argues that maybe they wrote it together. And was, as was the custom in the day, women were not highly valued in authorship or witness. And so it would indicate why there is space to the author. We just don't know. But the reason why I like it really, it's because they took Apollos aside in Acts 18. Acts, uh, Apollos was a new believer. He was crazy. He was wild. He was a preacher. And it said they took him aside and taught him the way of the Lord more adequately. And I feel the mother's heart when I read this as best as I can. I feel it most aptly described in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 where he said, pay, she said, pay much more careful attention to. It really is a mother thing. You know, I, th I think, can I be really genderist and, and uh, not PC? I, I, I kind of feel that so often the mother is deeply entrenched in, 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 in empathy and compassion and alertness. And be, I want you to be aware of this. Um, my son's 22, and he will get in the car, as he did this week, to drive back down to San Diego. And I'm saying, what's up, dude? Meryl says, T, what does she say? Drive carefully. You know what I mean? And, and he's like, whatever. I'm 22. These are my surfboards in the car. They are to be protected at all costs. These are my high treasures. I will drive carefully. See, it's that mother's heart that creeps through. And I can see the kind of dining room table type conversations in which all of these great stories are being told over and over and over again. My grandson who was running around here discovered, as do most kids, the power of the word again. Have you noticed with a child? Again. Doesn't matter whether we're reading a book, playing a game, teasing him or whatever. He says, again. And, and I feel this is what's happening. It's the cyclic rhythm of new truth revisited. New truth revisited. New, because the author wants us to dig deep. Why? Tamaki Gospel uh, uh, Bible Project says there are two primary reasons why threads and themes that come through this book. Both of them are exquisite to me. The first is the superiority of Jesus, starting in chapter 1. Now, you know, friends, in this pantheistic world we live in, there is a driving notion that all religions are the same. They all end up in Rome, so to speak. There's no elitism in our response. Jesus did something that the others did not do. Buddha did not do. Muhammad did not do, and so on. He dwelt amongst us in human form, understanding the challenge and the trauma of our humanity, but in every way, yet without sin. And there is something C.S. Lewis says, famous quote, words to this effect, that Jesus either was who he said he was, or he is a nutcase equivalent to someone who says they're a fried egg. There's no option here. He's not just a good teacher. He says two radical things. He's too dramatic. He's too much out there. And so the supremacy of Jesus, who, why is that being written? Because these Jewish believers have been scattered throughout 
the region, the known world, and they are experiencing high trauma. I mean, just think for a moment. I was looking at YouTube, and with uh, the Taliban moving into uh, Kabul, there are, in fact, the news agency that popped up said, it looks like biblical proportion as these mass of human beings with just bags of stuff were moving across to the Pakistani border. The masses of humanity, it looked like biblical proportion, the, the reporter said. Now think of that. And think of these Jewish believers who were where they were because of Jesus. And so the second major driving idea is the appeal to us to stay true and steadfast in the face of persecution. Folks, we are coming through. We're not through yet. This pandemic. And sadly, it's been a persecution of the church. And I'm not at all pointing to politics. I'm talking as a pastor, a father of this community, and the churches we work with globally. It's had a dreadful impact. People have fallen away from the faith. People have fallen away from community. People have just disappeared. And the author senses this chaos, trauma, uncertainty. And there is the deep rooted to feel, please stay true. Stay steadfast. Stay strong. Come on. I was in the army. And uh, during boot camp, obviously, people come in from all shapes and sizes, all sorts of backgrounds. And we were all school teachers. I just graduated from university, went straight into boot camp. And uh, there was a chunky guy, flabby and overweight. I can't remember his name now. And we were running from the shooting range, probably, I'm going to say 12 Ks, with our backpacks and our weapons. And uh, I looked at him struggling. I mean, he was literally stumbling. I was fit. I was strong. And I went across to him as we ran in our platoon. I said, give me a weapon, I'll carry it. And uh, so I was running with these two, two weapons, and the sergeant stopped us. He turned to this boot camp cadet, and he said, where is your rifle, son? Now, he's about 18, and we're all much older, like 22. Where's your rifle, son? And the guy said, Sir Vinan said he'll carry it for me. And he cussed him out. Never let anyone ever carry your rifle. It sounded so butcher. It sounded so harsh. But the driving conversation was real and true. You have to remain steadfast even when it feels overwhelmingly challenging. Are you with me? Okay. So this evening we are looking at Roman, I mean in Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, I've asked Robert to come and read it in its entirety. It's 40 verses. And uh, it's a very powerful passage. Because what you will know is how little I cover because time is not my friend. So come on, homeboy. Bring us what you got. Uh, have you got a mic? Yes, you have. Thank you. You may just need to step back a little bit if it's a little That's short. That's all right. Yeah, we go. We are a highly mobile, pivotal, agile church. All right. It's funny, I just wanted to say something real quick before I read this. Um, I had, had a conversation with my dad a few days ago where I was talking about faith. And I was like, what does faith look like in action? And then Pastor Chris asked me to read this today. And the title of all of chapter 11 is Faith in Action. And it goes over every, or most instances, and then they run out of room. You'll see. They say, I literally can't cover it all. There's so many. All right. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had sent to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stonings. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. 
Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Beautiful. Thanks, bro. Well read. Come on, give him a round of applause or some love. So, so what strikes you? And that's not rhetorical. What strikes you? Great. Moses to leave comfort and pleasure. What else? Jen? They didn't receive their province. Whoa, that's a little complicated. We don't want that part, do we? They were still living by faith when they died. They were living by faith when they died. Maddie, you must have gone to Biola. I did. Okay, I thought so. Sarah was initially filled with fear, but she became known as a woman of faith. She was initially known for her fear, but became a woman of faith. Isn't it amazing that when we have a passage like this, we are initially startled by the repetition of by faith, by faith, by faith. But actually, the moment we step into the next part of any sentence in the 40 verses, it's challenge and obstacle. The great disservice we, the Western church, do is we invite people to something sexy. Come to our church, we've got a great building. Come to our church, we have a great band. Come to our church, we have great coffee and donuts. Craft coffee. Come to our church, we have, you got a family? Oh, we have great family ministry. See, what we're inviting people is something other than what the Bible invites them into. And I think from the beginning, if you, under, if you and I understand this, it shifts it around. Simon Sinek, probably one of my fun business commentators in this book called Start With a Why. And by the way, I've rewritten this message so many times that I'm actually preaching from scraps because I've rewritten it, my computer, I just thought at three o'clock this afternoon, okay, Lord, I'm going to simplify it. Now you have to speak through me. And what Simon does is he tells this story. He says, the issue of how we write ads, they're all about the what and not the why. A want ad may say, for example, account executive needed, minimum five years experience, must have a working knowledge of the industry, can work for a fantastic fast-growing company with great pay and benefits. The ad may produce loads of applicants, but how do we know which is the right fit? He carries on. Shackleton. Now, in a Shackleton, it was around about 1914, if I remember. Yes, it was. As an adventurer, wanted to conquer the last known obstacle on the planet, and that was to traverse the Antarctica with a group of men. And so rather than say, well, it's great captain, sturdy boat, many years experience, great chef, good food, adventure, come out with stars and stripes, he ran an ad in the, in the New, London Times, 19, October 1914, which read this. Um, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitterly cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The next morning, he had a line outside the door of men who wanted to sign up. I think it was 124 of them who set off to go and conquer. They never even got to the Antarctica. An early storm came in. It basically crushed the ship systematically. They had to make a decision to bail, to leave all of their goods, but for minimum uh, supplies. They got to the ocean where there was water and they made a decision that they would leave most of the crew there and he and a handful of others had an 800-mile storm-filled ocean crossing to go and get help. The miracle of the story is no one died. But you see, they were invited into a hazardous journey that death was highly probable. Why do we offer a Christianity that death, other than that death is highly probable? Did Jesus not say, come and join me and die? Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my, eat of my body. Oh, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm running ahead of myself. And, and I want to say today, as we look at faith, it's an invitation to an alternative life that is compact with challenge, obstacles, and hurdles. 
Please don't think we come to Jesus to be happy. The notion of come to Jesus and you'll have a great marriage is not in the Bible. The idea of come to Jesus and he's going to make you wealthy is just not true. And if we are to really explore faith, and I'm going to do it in about 25 minutes now, I want to keep that as our backdrop. It's the most compelling adventure. I met with one of you recently for coffee. I won't point you out. I said, this is our first time. Tell me, what must I know about you? And he said, I nearly died three times. Once in a car accident where I was T-boned. Once from an, an OD, drug overdose. The second time from an overdose where my mother, who happened to find me, thought I was dead. He said, the thing is, Chris, that drug culture was a highly uh, empowering community. The fear of leaving community was greater than the fear of not taking drugs anymore. And I said to him, Jesus must have been incredibly compelling from you to leave the experience and the community that the drug community offered to step into a world of uncertainty. There was no promise of community. There was no pro promise of the high that drugs gave. There was no promise of all that you have been used to. How compelling must Jesus have been? And can I say this with the Father's love and affection? If Jesus is not more compelling than the alternative, you don't know the Jesus that I do. This Jesus, this exquisite Jesus, is worth laying our lives down for. And to me, that's what this chapter was. Caleb, you're absolutely right. How compelling must God have been to Moses to leave the privilege and the pomp and the circumstance of the civilization of the day, Pharaoh's courts. He was as a son to Pharaoh. He had endless slaves, endless garments, endless rooms, endless provision, endless privilege, but something was more compelling than that. And folks, that's the Jesus I want to introduce you to. When we truly encounter this Jesus, he is just more compelling. Faith to me has four essential interplaying ideas. The Greek, which we'll look at briefly, and I'm not a Greek student. Again, I'm reliant on Tim Mackey to help me. It's not a simple definition, and I'm not inviting you into a linguistic study. I'm inviting you into this, which is a life of challenge and obstacle, but a compelling Christ makes it worthwhile. You want to live a life of loneliness? Join Jesus. You want to live a life of uncertainty? Join Jesus. Every one of these, if we had a whole year to teach through this and take faith in all of these glorious people's lives, why did Rahab, I was thinking about it this week, she was a prostitute. She had a house on the wall. Her parents lived with her. I don't know how you worked that out, but she did. But this is what she said to the two scouts when they came to her house. She said, we have heard of your God. We've heard of your God. She was prepared to betray her whole town, Jericho. She was prepared to turn her back on her culture. She was prepared to turn her back on the known, the preferential. This God, we've heard about this God. Isn't that amazing? Who, honestly, who is the Jesus that you are compelled by? So four things that I think interweave to help us understand it. The first is that faith is transcendent. It is an invitation to the eternal. One of you said that. Uh, Jen said that. That what happens here is that they never get to the promise. Because the promise is other. The full and final completion of all of this is when we stand before him one day where there are no tears, no heartache, no pain, no trauma, no chaos, no addiction. And in that instant, we will be like him. But when the eternal breaks in on the temporal, dear friends, we can live a life 
of faith. We are strangers and exiles in this crazy world we live in. This is a book I loved. It's called The Road to Character by David Brooks. David Brooks is a New York Times author. I, I really enjoy reading him. I enjoy listening to him. But he tells the story of a woman called Dorothy Day who I did not know anything about. But I want to read from his writings lest I represent him and her poorly. I wondered. She was a woman born in San Francisco in the early part of the 1900s. She was very bohemian. She lived a life of drugs and addiction. She had multiple lovers. She had an abortion. She went to prison twice for marching against social injustice for women. Um, she lived in the, the, the gangsters in New York loved her because she outdrank them. She was a beautiful woman. I, I went online to check her out. Beautiful woman, very compelling and everything. But something happened to her, and it was at the birth of her daughter. And it's her day was not answering the question of whether God exists. She was simply made aware of a presence beyond herself. You see, when the eternity breaks in, it's not, oh, do I believe? Don't I? Oh, I'm not sure if I believe. Eternity hasn't broken in. She was surrendered to the belief that independent of one's own will, there was something significant that shapes life. In the life of a radical was a life of assertion and agency, the desire to steer history. She was turning from that to a life of obedience. She wanted to craft her narrative. She wanted to stay in control. She wanted to live her life. She wanted to change her society, says David Brooks. But she turned because of the eternal presence that met her the day her daughter was born into a life of obedience. God was in charge. As she later put it, she came to see that worship, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication, these were the noblest acts of which men were capable of in this life. The birth of a daughter began her transformation from a scattered person to a centered person, from an unhappy bohemian to a woman who had found her calling. So what did she start doing? She started a home, her own home, for women who had just come out of prison, women who were escaping from uh, abuse, women who um, had uh, addictions, homeless women, now, she was an elegant woman from a very well-to-do family. And I'm giving you that context because this is what she said of her day. Day was not naturally a social creature. She had a writer's personality, somewhat aloof and often craving solitude. But she forced herself to be with people almost all day, from eating bread as breakfast in the morning. In fact, she was so poor at one stage, she just collapsed. And they had to hospitalize her and strengthen her up again. Here was a bohemian woman of high education, living a privileged life, who decided to live in a home with addicts, abused women, and I carry on reading. Many of these she served had mental disabilities and suffered from alcoholism. Bickering was constant. We're talking to about an introvert. We're talking about a woman who wanted to be alone much. The guests would be rude, nasty, and foul-mouthed, yet she forced herself to sit at the table, focus on the specific person in front of her. That person might be drunk or incoherent, but they would sit, showing respect and listening. Twenty-seven homes by the time she died. They wanted her to write her story. Why would she do that? Why would she do that? It's not her personality. It's not her culture. She writes, it's very moving. The man she loved but never married because he turned on her when she turned her faith. She wrote afterwards in letters that were kept of her deep love for him. She said, I long to hold you in my chest. I want to feel your arms around me. I miss you every day. Folks, forgive my crassness. What the hell? Why would you do that? As she lay dying, they asked her to write about these things, and this is what she said. I tried to think back. I tried to remember this life that the Lord gave me. The other day, I wrote down the words a life remembered, and I was going to try to make a summary for myself, write about the things that mattered most, but I could not do it. I just sat there and thought of the Lord. 
I thought of the Lord and his visit to us all those centuries ago, and I said to myself, her language, that my great luck was that is to have him in my mind so long, so much, so long in my life. That's all she could say. I don't have a story to tell. All that I can tell you is the incredible privilege of knowing Jesus this long. Why? Because faith is allowing the eternal, the transcendent, to break into our lives. When the transcendent exists as the primary motivation, you and I will live lives of faith. But when all of us, including me, become selfish, narcissistic, self-preoccupied, what matters most is our comfort and our convenience, we'll never live a life like this. It will never be compelling enough. Because I am the center of my universe. I am my own Messiah. I will liberate me. I will even go to Christian courses to liberate me. But as she lay there, she said, I have nothing else to say really but the privilege, she called it luck, of living with Jesus so much of my life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a woman for whom faith was transcended and overcame her own personality, became her own bias, preference, culture, her own comfort, her convenience. Read that chapter or read the book. There are books about her. And it will be incredibly powerful. Susie's parents are stuck somewhere in the world. They live with the notion of death every day as Christians. Those who oppose them go door to door every day killing them. They're getting many out. I'm hoping we're able to get some of them here. And we think, why? They've got five kids? Married? How many grandkids? 10,000? Well, I don't know how many. Why? Why stay there with the probability of martyrdom? But for eternity. We will see each other there one more time. That's when everything culminates. That's when everything comes together. That's when it all makes sense. Do we live with death we don't understand? Yes, sir, we do. Do we live with the complexities of life that seem undefinable? Yes, we do. But then in that great moment, it will all make sense. And that's where faith starts. That's how Hebrews 11 starts and how Hebrews 11 ends. It's the front end and the book end of what true faith is all about. I think the second thing that is incredibly compelling is that faith is spoken. The writer starts off by talking about that God spoke and the universe was created. And we get all sorts of pedantic debates. Was it seven days, the literalists will tell us? Well, those who aren't compelled by that idea are definitely saying that it could not have been seven days. I mean, folks, Peter says, in 2 Peter, he says, One day is as a thousand days unto the Lord. I don't think, and you can, you can disagree, I don't mind. I don't think Genesis 1 was, was, was written as a scientific account of the beginning of things. It was written as a prophetic proclamation. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things happen. Faith is spoken. And when God speaks, things happen. So many of these stories, forgive my passion tonight, but I hope your heart is seeded by the beauty in this text. Think of all of them, that if time allowed, we would go through that moment, that clarifying moment when God speaks, be it a scripture that's illuminated, be it a prophecy, be it God speaking in his own person, be it the inner audible voice, be it a prophecy. I saw, what do you see, Jeremiah? Dreams, visions. Doesn't matter, but that defining moment, that moment when God speaks. I was in 1995, I think, love. I was in Taichung, Taiwan. In 1990, God had spoken to Merrill and I in Hong Kong that we were to spend the rest of our days abroad. We come from two incredibly close families. We're the only ones who live abroad. And the Spirit of God said to us, you will spend the rest of your days abroad. Our hearts leapt at the prospect of planting a church in Hong Kong. That was our 
deep desire. At that stage, a city of six million people, beautiful, complicated, smelly, dirty, exquisite, came home, called our families together. We are moving to Hong Kong. We didn't move to Hong Kong. We didn't move to Australia where we thought, well, if we don't live in Hong Kong, we can live in Australia. That's a long story in its own right. Whenever God really wants to speak to me, he asks me to get on my knees. And I was in this hotel room in Taichung, Taiwan. And I said, Lord, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? Now, folks, I was leading a church. Honestly, we were 1,000 people, all young. I was 38 by then. It was 20s and 30s. Artists, singers, songwriters, sculptors, surfers, people in the surfing industry. It was my dream church, but I could stay no more because of the disquiet of the spirit. And I felt God say, get on your knees. And I got on my knees and said, you're asking the wrong question, son. I said, what do you mean? It's not a geographical or sociopolitical question. Where do you want me to go? It's who do you want me to love and I wept on the floor in Taichung because I knew something had just transpired. X time later, months later, we got a call from a broken Pentecostal church in, the Walnut, in Walnut, East San Gabriel Valley. They were in their 50s. They were electricians, plumbers, contractors, mechanics. They weren't at all like the church we were leaving behind. They didn't understand us. Many of them didn't even want us. But what did I have to hold on to? God said, I will teach you to love people you have nothing in common with. Faith is when the word is spoken. Remember the story of St. Patrick? For those of you who don't know, he was about 16 years old, living in northeastern England, when Irish uh, pirates came across and captured him. And for six years, he lived as a slave up in the mountains, underdressed, always hungry, caring for the sheep. He was an angry, rebellious young man who arrived as a slave on foreign shores. He left as a man with a sweet spirit because he had no friend but Jesus. He couldn't sleep at nights in the cave because it was too cold. So the only thing he would do is make a little fire in the wet, damp moss that is called Ireland. And he would speak for hours to Jesus, his only friend. Who would have been angry, bitter, resentful? God, why have you done this to me? One night God speaks to him, tells him to go to a particular bay and he will get a boat home. He does, miraculous story, 200 miles by foot, never got caught as an escaped slave. He gets out of Ireland. We don't know what happens for about the next 20 years. He finds his way back to his family. His family are ecstatic. We're so good to have you home. Please don't leave again. We love you. We missed you. We thought you were dead. And one night in a dream, the angel Victoricus it's in his writings, meets with him. And in his hand are sheets, like caller papers if you've been involved in the army or something similar. And one is pulled out, and while he is pu pulling this out, he hears, Patrick does, the voices of the Irish saying, you young one, come and walk amongst us again. I'm sorry, but I'm getting just this incredible. That's what took him to Ireland. Pardon, love? Took him, back. Took him back to Ireland. He went to kings who wanted to kill him. Lords that wanted to destroy him. And they drink beer today. Guinness on his behalf because he changed the nation. What is faith but the word God has spoken over our lives? Ignore it and something inside of you will die. Honestly. Embrace it. And there is a life that you will live that will transcend what you thought eternally. And down here, you will do things that are extraordinary. This isn't a go-boy key. This isn't a dream. It's not that kind of talk. It's a costly talk. It's a costly. I said to my daughter who lives in Australia, she FaceTimed us yesterday. Our little granddaughters were running in an athletic meet in Perth. And my daughter just, she's beautiful, her beautiful face appeared, filled the whole little face time thing as she was showing us our granddaughters running in the race. And I just wanted to weep. I said, Nas, I miss you so much. And she wept and she said, Dad, I miss you so much. I said, Nas, I want to hear you say, come around for pizza. But I know it's just not going to happen. And she said, I know. Why are they there? 
Because faith is the spoken word. Thirdly, faith is not just transcendent and spoken, but faith is also... Oh, sorry, let, let me just do this. I apologize, I apologize. Just so moved at the thought of my daughter, quite honestly. The problem with this passage is what the two words mean. Assurance and conviction. That's, that's the challenge we have. And so the Greek word, now if you're a Greek student, forgive me, don't expose my nakedness here, is hypostasis. And different translations interpret it in different ways. Assurance, reality, substance. It's the substance, assurance, or reality of things hoped for. It doesn't mean, oh God, I want to get this job. Oh, this is what I hope for, therefore it's the substance of that. Please, I don't know if God's offended, but that's not at its core what faith is. There's a bigger story that key moments plug themselves into that bigger story. It isn't, can I have a job? That's not faith. Faith plugs itself into these key moments, but the biggest story of our lives gets us to obey Him in amazing ways. If evidence is the Greek word elenkos, elenkos, the evidence of things not yet seen. Now, that's, that means that faith is reasonable. Faith is considered that's my third point. Not only is it transcendent, not only is it spoken, but it's considered or reasoned or thought through. When I was your age, I'd just come to faith, really knew nothing about any of this. And um, uh, the pastor of the church which I was in, that was a kind of an inner city, pretty fun, crazy church actually. If we have time one day, I'll tell you stories. We didn't have people welcome at the door, we had bouncers. <laughs> Big Dave was Big Dave for six foot four, massive man. And Paul McFarlane, Paul was the South African heavyweight bodybuilding champion. And they would literally stand at the gate because we had all sorts of people come. And if they sniffed that you'd been drinking or your eyes told them you were on drugs, they would grab you and say, welcome. And they would plonk them down on the back seat in front of them. And if they got up to want to say a few things, that big hand would come upon them. And then ushered them out. I mean, it was crazy. Lots of amazing stories around that. But Carl said this. I want to give you the gift of a thinking man's faith. And he did. He taught Matthew, Romans, Hebrews, Revelation through. And every Thursday we'd meet with him and process the text. And he would challenge us and stretch us. Because faith is reasonable, dear friends. Faith is reasonable. Remember the story that was read by Robert so beautifully. It says there in verse 11, And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful. Now, what is that? Quickly. She was a failure. She laughed when the angels came. You're obviously kidding. I'm 80. We don't do children at 80. I mean, and honestly, at 60, I wouldn't want to do children. I don't have the energy to get up. Mind you, I don't sleep much, but getting up and doing the thing. So not only was she a failure, but she laughed at God. And I love the integrity of the text because what it does in that moment is it invites us in because we've all done it. You're kidding, right? There's no way you're going to do that. But after years of the wilderness and seeing God's repeated blessing, she realized that he really is faithful. And so she reasoned, she considered, she thought through, my God is faithful and true. He will do this. We can't all, and none of you would want to, say, well, I'm 80, I'm just going to believe like Sarah. No, Sarah had a word from the Lord. And she believed that after considering all the implications. Faith is transcendent, faith is spoken, and faith is deeply considered. I'm, I'm, I'm rushing quickly because I think we've got the gist of tonight. But obviously, faith is action. It's not faith. It's not a concept, an idea, a philosophy. It's not a definition. It is 
action. Every one of these people acted. Acted on their faith. I love Moses, and you can read it through in this particular account. You know what I love about him? Is the faith his parents gave him. I was thinking of your folks, Susie. The gift the parents gave him. They broke the law. They jolly well broke the law. The law was kill the boys. They said, heck no. We're not going to listen to the law. There's a higher call. This is no ordinary child. I really don't care what happens to us. I'm going to break the law. Because faith calls me to a higher obedience. His sister was his nanny. And to the analogy I used early on, as my grandson so often says, again, again, I can imagine little Moses, cute little chubby cheeks, chubby thighs, you know, chubby arms, and, and his sister's rocking him by the Nile and playing in the sand, and he comes back, he says, again? I said, what do you mean again? Tell me the story about mommy again. And she said, well, Pharaoh told us to do really bad things. Told us that he didn't want little boys. But see, mommy took you and put you in a little basket and coated the basket on the inside to protect you from the water and, and kept you in there, Moses. No, no, my name's not Moses. It's, I can't remember now. What did Pharaoh call him? T tell me again what happened. Well, well then mom came and she, she put you down in the Nile. and she, she, she believed God, that God had spoken to her about you. And you floated down the river. Was, was mommy not scared that I would drown? No, because God had spoken. And she needed to act. And then the great moment, not only did his parents put faith into him, but he was the crazy, wild, young gun who just took things into his own hands and messed everything up and killed the man way too early. Don't we butcher prophetic words? We just do it too early. And he goes on the run, and then he has a burning bush experience. God speaks. It's transcendent. God speaks. It can be considered. And then there is action. And I often try and humanize my, my biblical storytellers. And I can imagine, honestly, I've been leading a long, long time. And it's very lonely. And I can imagine Moses getting to the place, and he sees the Red Seas, and everyone's panicking. Dude, you must see who's coming. They are going to slaughter us. And he sits there by himself. And all the naysayers and the pessimists are all over him. This is, this is going down, dude. This is going down. We're going to die right here. And he extricates himself from all of them and finds a quiet spot. And he looks out over the this, this sea. He says, God, but you said. You've spoken. I can't do this. I tried all those years ago. I killed a man. But I don't know what to do here. God says, can you trust me? Will you do this for me? This is not a normal life. This is not an easy life. This is an invitation to something extraordinary. And it could be invisible. It could be that no one will ever hear your name. It could be that no one will ever know, or not any group of people, the assignment God gives you. It may be... Scary, it may be nerve-wracking. And as the last of the last days happen, faith will ever rise in our hearts because it's transcendent, it is spoken, it is, what's my third point? Considered, and then there's an action step. I land. What does that mean for you and me? What is your hotel in Taichung moment? And the Spirit of God quiets, quietens you on your knees. What, what, what is that moment for you? What is your burning bush? What is that moment God speaks to you? Because that will define the rest of your life. I love marriage. And I loved walking my girls down the aisle. And if Dorothy Day was my daughter, it would have been broken every single day of my life when I looked at a daughter whose eyes were broken by the tears of her singleness. She accepted she would never get married. And the man she loved so deeply, the accounts are she, they used to go to a beach house just outside of New York, and they would spend much of the summer there, not travel much at all, and they would just make love, read poetry, cook food, go for walks on the beach. Wow, how compelling must Jesus have been for her to walk away from that? 
Would you close your eyes with me, Ty? Can you help me? Thank you for being so gracious. I think I spoke a little long. Apologize for that. Our kind of tradition is just open our hands on our laps because it just indicates a posture of receptivity and humility. You see, I don't know what God has asked of you. I don't know who you are in this story, all these names mentioned, whose story is like you. I don't know that. But what I do know is that God has impregnated, impregnated you with a sense of eternity. A sense that we're living a life that will only be fully completed when we are with Him. A word that was spoken into your heart, or maybe several words, that you might be running away from, under the guise of intellectual argument and debate. But in your core, you know you're running away. Faith is transcendent. Faith is spoken. Faith is reasoned. And then faith is obedient. I said today, now I don't really know what God wants to do tonight. I trust Him. But maybe for some it's a moment of being arrested back to the thing God said for you. About you. Ty, if you don't mind just singing whatever you're playing, I have no idea. But I'd love us just to take a moment and allow that still quiet voice to speak into your soul again.